0: Hello, and welcome to the LiteratiCast. I'm Jennifer Lofrin and I'm a senior agent at the Andrea Brown Literary Agency, where I rep kids' books from picture books through YA and everything in between. My guest today has a new picture book coming out very soon, or possibly already out, depending on when you're listening to this. The End of Something Wonderful is Stephanie Lucianovic's first picture book, and she's going to talk to us about navigating your debut season and so much more. Let me see if I can get Stephanie on the line. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Jen. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Of course. So we've been Twitter friends for a long time, so I definitely wanted to get you on here. Yes. Because your debut picture book is about to come out as we record this. Congratulations. Thank you. So I thought maybe we could talk a bit about it and about navigating pre-publication and the things you've learned along the way. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Okay. First of all,
1: can you tell us a bit about your book and what led you to write it? So my book, The End of Something Wonderful, A Practical Guide to a Backyard Funeral, is about a mourning process that I felt wasn't necessarily always covered or frequently covered in books about uh, dead pets for kids, which is having a backyard funeral can be extremely therapeutic as sort of a practical way to move through your stages of grief. It is something, having backyard funerals, is something that I did a lot as a child uh, with my older sister, from small animals to our cats. And at the time of writing it, I had been wanting to write a book to sort of deal with our own, my family's own uh, process of dealing with one of our cats dying, and I was reading all the books out there, and I really wanted to commemorate that cat Hunkamunka in some way. But in the end, as I read the various books, you know, the typical ones that I'll get into later about mentor texts, I did see this lack of a guide, and so I decided to make it more general to pets passing, dying, uh, and less specific to my family. But I did think about if I were to teach my kids, what what did I do as a child when I did backyard funerals? Cause we hadn't done them here in California. And so I sat down and literally the first line was first, you need something dead. And that has been the first line that has stuck. And from then it just flowed out as this second person, how to.
0: Uh, so you mentioned mentor texts. I know you had a ton of mentor texts when you were writing the end of something wonderful. Can you tell
1: us first for the uninitiated, what is a mentor text and also why are they important? Okay. So I have to say that I didn't necessarily know what a mentor text was when I was writing this book. Initially, I think my agent at the time said, "Um, this would be a good mentor text for you. And I'm not even sure which book it was. And I was like, oh, there's a term for going and looking up all the books that might be relevant. So a mentor text or texts are books that you seek out because you want to see how a particular topic like death in pets has been treated by other books. And it doesn't even have to be death in pets for me. It was death, it enlarged to sad things or darker picture books and how have they worked in humor. Um, So in writing the end of something wonderful, I ended up having, well, at least 20 mentor texts that I could say materially contributed to how I was going to shape the text. And not all of them were death or sad or dark books. Some were extremely silly, like if you're going to bring an alligator to school, don't. Um, So mentor texts can help inform the text you're writing in terms of How far can you go? What hasn't been done? What boundaries can you push? But also, if you're trying to capture a certain tonality or a certain voice, you're still trying to find your voice in that text, reading lots of mentor texts in a category of voice you want to capture is another thing that they are useful for. So it's basically reading a lot of books. They're mentor texts. They're probably along the way (laughs) All going to contribute to your writing. Like I say, twenty mentor texts I could name, but truthfully, my mentor texts would be every children's book I've ever read because they all fall in into your head somehow.
0: Right, and you're not just reading them though. You're like really reading them. You're like
1: analyzing them. Right, why do they work? Exactly. You're really paying attention to. The language, the word usage, uh, for me, it's always about beat and flow. I'm always trying to be very in sync with that, with what I write in a more lyrical style. And you're not copying the style. You're hopefully coming up with your own voice as a result of an amalgamation of lots of other voices. And so you are studying them to that degree. So you...
0: Said that you read about 20 or a million, but yes. how did you find those mentor texts?
1: Um. Okay. So some I would have already been aware of when I first started out writing um, my first dead cat book. And I think it was an editor who said, you should read the 10th good thing about Barney, which I had not ever come across in my whole, I, I was not aware of this book, even though I love Judith Viorst. Um, so went and read that, uh, bald. And I was also aware of of other death pet books because our preschool teacher at the time had suggested various ones. And then I literally started doing Google searches and looking up dead pet books and then becoming very aware of books about death for children being discussed on Twitter. Or if you go to... Amazon and you look at books that are related to uh, you know, say the 10th good thing about Barney. I think that that's how I found um, City Dog Country Frog. That was a way of doing it. But it was at times a Google search or going on Twitter and saying, hey, what are some good books that deal with pet death? Either because I needed it for my own children at the time or later, I was expanding that to look for what else was out there that I hadn't already been uh, that hadn't already been recommended to me.
0: And of course, I would say your
1: friendly neighborhood librarian or bookseller is a good resource too. Definitely. I would say so. I'm a little bit, I guess I'm a little bit shy in that respect. So I tend to do my research um, very personally on my own, but I would say that yes, I mean, teachers, librarians, booksellers, they would all have recommendations because I know booksellers for sure and librarians have designated shelves even, or sections that deal with grief.
0: So I know it sounds from all you've said so far, your book sounds very depressing and upsetting. <laughs> uh, but I know that it isn't because I've read it. It's funny. Um, so how do you navigate that? Like you're, it's a topic that a lot of people would shy away from when it comes to picture books. How do you overcome that? And why do you think it is that people shy away? And like, how do you uh, I don't
1: know. Well, How do okay. With that? How did I do it in the text? Is That was more in the mentor text idea, too, of looking at uh, Lucy Ruth Cummins' book, A Very Hungry Lion or a Dwindling Assortment of Animals, because it was dark humor. It was death, but it was funny. And then also reading goofball humor, like President Squid by Aaron Reynolds and Sarah Varen. So I knew I wanted this to be... Emotional and I think it just easily came out as emotional because I was emotional while writing it But I also had to really put myself in the child's brain Which is why I do have what come across as funny but are actually quite um grounded reality recommendations like don't dig up your something dead just to see how it's doing because kids are (laughs) they are curious They are definitely morbid little creatures, more morbid than their parents want them to be at a young age because we are so protective of, oh, we don't want them to be upset at such a young age. It's too young for them to learn about death. Well, the thing is, while I may have had that initial reaction when our first cat died and our our three-year-old didn't quite understand it, which was fine, um overprotecting them from that is not easy for the parent to do. And it's also not great for the kid, in my opinion, as a parent and as an author, because if you normalize death earlier, it doesn't become this verboten topic that is scary. And if you always well up or shy away from it as an adult, you're sending a signal to your child that um, this is something upsetting that nobody wants to talk about. So, Part of my reasoning for writing the book or part of my desire in the book was to make it a little bit more lighthearted and still practical and still emotional in that death is part of life. It happens. Yes, we are going to be sad, but let's talk about what it is. Let's talk about what we're doing. Let's talk about how we can get through it together. And kids like being given tasks as a way adults do too, I guess, as a way of processing extreme emotions or frustration or stress or grief.
0: So that time between when you sell a picture book and when the picture
1: book actually comes out can be so long. How long has it been for you? Okay. So for me, it honestly, in, in the age of picture books, I know it hasn't been that long because it's only been two and a half years. And I say only because I know enough now as a picture book author that it's going to be at least two years from, uh, you know, possibly offer or contract to publication. I think for me, the hardest time was between offer and being public about it. That, you know, Publishers Weekly Children's Bookshelf announcement when you can finally no longer sub tweets about the thing that you're working on that you're so excited about. That was a that can be a very long period of time because um, the publisher, at least from you know because I'm a text only author, the publisher, the editor needs to find the illustrator, and their deal needs to be negotiated, and all that all that stuff happens before you can announce publicly. so that that for me felt interminable. This time ramping up into publication, I mean, it does get filled with the initial sketches and the excitement that you see when that comes in and like oh my gosh and oh but I have some ideas of maybe this should be like this or this shouldn't be like that and you know that gets filtered through your editor who usually will be like oh yep we already said that we agree you know that kind of thing um you know there's the editing of the text time period which for picture books usually at least my experience for two picture books hasn't been a very long process. Um it's a very enjoyable process for me, so that fills the time. But then you do get past that and more art comes in and the final art and the cover and flap copy all these things do seek to fill that void. But if they don't, the prescribed uh way of waiting is go write something else, which I did. And then I did some mm-hmm. more. And then I did some more. And then my agent said, "Stephanie, maybe you should write something longer than picture books. Cause we've got a lot of them for you that are viable. Why don't you basically like stay out of my inbox, go write something that's going to take a long time. So I did, I wrote a middle grade novel <laughs> um, and that actually only took me about three months to draft the first draft, but then it took me, you know, that just, in fact, I started writing that last summer and that deal was just announced, uh, I believe last month. So, you know, doing that, going and writing something else, but also thinking about and reading about what you want your debut year to be like, which can be incredibly overwhelming. You see all the the giveaways and the pre-order campaigns and the blog tours. And at some point I found myself thinking, okay, this is too much. This is too much to do. And I had a good conversation with my agent about, and she was like, just You do what you want to do. There are certain things that move the needle, but you have to know that there are certain things that you should do only because you want to do them, like the pre order campaigns or the blog tours. Like focus on what you want to do that makes you happy, you know, moving, ramping up to publication, and don't get too stressed out about the other stuff.
0: So, piggybacking off of that, um, some authors avoid social media, some embrace it. And I suspect your social media pol- strategy is similar to what you just said, but what
1: is it and what have you gained from it? Well, yes, I am what I guess people would say as being extreme. I'm extremely online, or at least I'm extremely on Twitter. I've been on Twitter for 10, 11 years now. Um, uh, And I had, a, I had a book come out in 2012, which was an adult nonfiction narrative memoir type thing. Um, so I've been on Twitter and built sort of a feeling around it and I, who I follow and what I use it for. And I don't just use it to promote my work, my writing. I do use it as socializing. I do use it as news gathering. And so I've all these aspects uh, that come into Twitter. So it doesn't just feel like for me, this is work only. This is, um, promote your book constantly only. No, for me, it was discovering new authors, discovering agents and editors and learning about books I hadn't heard about yet in the, in the children's book realm. Um, I really like using it to foster uh, relationships that because being a writer is so lonely and in your head and at home or in an office somewhere, I really do kind of look at other children's writers on Twitter as my office mates. So interacting with them and having industry conversations or questions or silliness, I really like doing that, but it's something I enjoy. Uh, I think for other people, that stresses them out. And so I would say if you want to do it, start slowly, but look look at it as a continuing conversation over the years that you are constantly having with people that you get to know, that you get to be excited for when they have great news and they're excited for you when you have great news So that's what I have used Twitter for, continue to use Twitter for over the years. And what have I gained from it has been friendships, relationships. I mean, very evident for me going to SCBWI LA uh, this last month where I met you face to face was meeting a lot of people face-to-face that I had known for years on Twitter. And it was, it was really, I loved it. It was just like, hey, we know each other. I'm so-and-so on Twitter. And, you know, because my face isn't necessarily always on Twitter because I have my book cover there right now. Um, that, for me, was a really happy, positive uh, feedback that I'm getting from Twitter is just sort of the, we are there to support each other as best we can. And I really, really love that. And... Um, in that respect, when you support other authors or agents or editors, you know, it's likely they're going to want to support you too. You know, they're going to follow back. They're going to have conversations with you. They're going to support your work in the future or promote it. So that is definitely for me, socially and career wise is been a major gain for me.
0: You're also in a
1: debut group, right? Can you talk more about that? Right. So debut group, which I've definitely explained to new authors, is... I assume they started out specifically as like, hey, a bunch of us have a book coming out, whether it's um you know, a YA novel or a middle grade or a picture book coming out in this particular year for me, 2019. So let's sort of all... Collectively support each other, and th- I guess that's how debut groups got started way back in the day. Whenever they got started, um, I did have a friend who was a is a critique partner. Say, uh, a friend of mine is has her picture book coming out, and she's a member of this debut group. Do you want to be connected to her? And I was like, okay, sure. So I got connected. I think she sent me like an email questionnaire to fill out about myself, and so I'm a part of the Notable Nineteens. And there's 13 of us, picture book authors. Some of us are uh, text only. Some of us are um, author and, you know, text and illustrator. And we all have picture books coming out in 2019. And what we have done is write a couple of blog posts each for the blog that is set up for Notable 19s. We all follow each other on Twitter. We try to retweet the good news that we see on Twitter. Um, we all went out and requested each other's books at our libraries or bookstores and then wrote reviews uh, at you know, Goodreads and Amazon, um, Barnes and Noble. I think Powell's Powell's definitely has its own place you can write reviews. I don't think IndieBound does, but I really wish they would. And, you know, we sort of committed to doing certain things and brainstorming, like what other things can we do together as a group that will get us attention? So you know, there were a couple of blogs out there like Tara Lazar who had us all on answering a question or uh, talking about what rule we all broke or something like that. So, that is what a debut group is. And you can participate, you know, as much or as little as you want because I think that can feel overwhelming about how much are we supposed to be doing because it is still all, you know, on your own dime. Obviously, you're not getting paid to do it because it's self promotion. But you have to make your own choices about whether or not you can participate in everything the entire group wants to do or and if your group's okay with that. But I think that's all said at the outset. I think at the outset for us, the mission was write reviews, request, request books, support each other on social media.
0: One thing that stymies a lot of new picture book authors who are not illustrators, <clears throat> so you're text only, like yourself, is how to deal with their illustrator because, like, surprise, this book that you were thinking about so hard for years is not just your book anymore. <laughs> right. So I know this is a passion point for you. Can can we talk about some like, do's and don'ts for picture book authors?
1: Yes. So I want to talk about this from the standpoint of, as a text-only author, when I first started out, I didn't even know if I could do children's books if I didn't also illustrate them. I obviously was disabused of that notion and found out this is the process. No, you don't have to find your own illustrator. But I was also that author who was like, oh, what if I don't like the illustrations? I can't let go of my work. Well, guess what? You can and you will if you want to get published because you have to. That's- and you have to. Exactly. Yes. That is part of the process. And I even had my little sister say, "Like, I don't think I could give up that control. And I was like, well, if you want to get published, you will. So yes, you can have, you know, in mind like, oh, I like this style or that style, but you know, you're not necessarily going to get that style. And once you sell your book for which you are paid to an editor, it is not just your book. It is their book. It is whatever illustrator they uh, contract. It's, it's a shared book. So, um, eventually it's like the frog, you know, the frog in the pot, turning up the water by degrees, you do get used to it. And it's very exciting uh, when you see the art or when you, when they're like, here's a list of illustrators we're considering. What do you think? You know, not all editors do that, but I, that's been my experience and it's great. It's just, it's just great to sort of look at different styles and be like, Ooh, could be that could be that could be that. Um, So you, you've got to ditch those preconceptions that this is your book, especially in my case, because when the art came in, the final spread was not quite exactly what I thought should be right for the story. And I said something to my editor. She was like, oh no, we agree on that. We've already said something. And so they went back to George Aramos, the illustrator of the end of something wonderful. And I don't know what they said, but it was probably like, we need a different way of ending this. And he came up with the end. I would never have imagined it, but it was so perfect, that I burst into tears when I saw that final spread. It was just, and I was laughing because it's funny and it's sweet. And it was just, it was just one of those wonderful, I didn't know that's what it should be. And yes, that's exactly what it should be because George knew that that's what it should be. So that is all the great stuff about having an illustrator too. But one thing I learned along the way is um, illustrators can be responsible, I think, for the end papers or the case cover. Um, if you have a different design under the, under the, um, the high, the dust jacket. Um, but there's a book designer involved too. So the book designer is responsible for how your jacket looks, how the case cover looks and how the end papers, maybe they come up with the design. They ask the illustrator for the art. But the book designer is responsible for the font, which I have gone on and on and on how much I love the font of The End of Something Wonderful because it's very Edward Gorey-like. And unbeknownst to the designer, the book designer, Irene Vandervoort at Sterling, I'd grown up with Edward Gorey books my whole life. My mom is a huge Edward Gorey freak and Charles Adams. So this was just one of these perfect serendipitous moments of they knew exactly what this book needed i never would have been able to say what the font should be because that's not the way i think i'm not graphically inclined um so when i found that out i wanted to make sure that i didn't say that it was the illustrator's font although i think some illustrators do fonts which is what makes this confusing that it was the book designer's font and if there's an art director involved i want you know people should know that name too so that when you go out on social media, on blogs, doing interviews, you should be promoting the whole package. It's not just the author who wrote the text. It's everything that went into what you see there to make it such a wonderful book. And that, so promote, always mention the illustrator, always try to mention the book designer when you're talking about the jacket or various design elements, because they want to hear great things about the book too. And I think that sometimes on social media, I mean, at least from what I see, it can be, there's a lot of text-only authors doing the promotion or they're the ones out there doing the publicity in some cases. And there are some illustrators who, well, George lives in England, so I don't see him on Twitter as much because we're totally out of time and out of time sync. And he also might not be a very online person, but I still want to make sure that he is tagged in some way so he knows... Hey, in case you didn't hear this blog mentioned us and said this great thing, you know, these great things about the book. And so that's, that's definitely a key point. Illustrator and art director or, or, um, book designer mention. make sure that they're seeing the great things that are being said about the book. If you are out there seeing it, they should be seeing it too. So just make sure they're seeing it. Um, one other thing you should not do is, and this is something I had to learn, and I'm still, I feel like retraining my mouth, don't refer to the illustrator as my illustrator. Now, that said, I've seen some illustrators on Twitter say, I'm not bothered by that. But I've seen some illustrators say like, ooh, yeah, please don't. Because I don't think George is out there referring to me as my author. Because that seems also strange. So it's the illustrator, the illustrator of our book or the end of something wonderful's illustrator, something like that. It's not my illustrator. I think it's it comes to you in a natural way of speaking, my illustrator, because you're saying my agent or my editor. That makes a little bit more sense, but my illustrator is no. It's the it's the book's illustrator. It's the illustrator of the book. So I still want to
0: talk, and we're like running out of time, but I need to talk to you about some books. Yes. So what are your favorite current new picture books that you think people should definitely pick up besides your own book?
1: Okay. So current for me can mean months ago, but they are in the year 2019. Um, I love um, the important thing about Margaret wise Brown by Mac Barnett and Sarah Jacoby that came out in May. Um, I especially love this quote because I feel like it really pertains to the book I wrote no good book is loved by everyone and any good book is bound to bother somebody because every good book is at least a little strange. And there are some people who do not like strange things in their worlds. I definitely think my book is at least a little bit strange and there are going to be some people who don't want it in their world. Um Bear came along by Richard Morris and Luanne Fan That came out in June. Love that. Um, oh, the undefeated that came out in April by Kwame Alexander and Kadir Nelson I think this is one of the most important books out there right now. And I think that every adult needs to read it as much as every child. Um, Small World came out July 19th by Ishta Mercurio. I love that book. Makes me cry. It's wonderful. Very STEM, uh, women in science empowering. And then I am currently waiting for two books to come in at my library. I'm waiting for Truman by Jean Reedy and Lucy Ruth Cummins. And a stone sat still by Brendan Wenzel. those are books I'm very excited about right now
0: um and of course, the end of something wonderful is from Sterling. It drops September tenth, and I know all my listeners will want to take a look at it because it's awesome and funny, even though it's above funerals
1: and you have so. to you have to get it so you can see the amazing end papers and what George Airmost did on that last spread, yes, absolutely.
0: So I ask all my guests this, as you know, what are you obsessed with? It does not have to be bookish, but it can be. Mine, I did not prepare anything. I will just (laughs) tell you from the heart what I am obsessed with, because I'm still actually watching the same thing that I was watching in the last episode recording this, Uh, which is Veronica Mars. Um, But at the moment, I am obsessed with cars. Why am I obsessed with Cars. cars? Because I have a car cars. Okay, like automobiles. Okay, so not like the
1: movie or okay.
0: So no. I, no, <laughs> no, the actual physical <laughs> items that you drive. So my um my lease is about to be up, so I'm looking at cars window shopping cars. And my thing is that I like I want a cool car that is a cool color. Uh-huh. <laughs> like emerald green or something like that. Like, I just don't want to have some dumb black car. Yeah. It's boring. And so at the moment I'm obsessed with um, looking at Alfa Romeos. Oh, they're so pretty. And they come in cool colors. Yes. Like this one Alfa Romeo comes in Hunter green with like a chocolate brown interior. Oh, wow. And I want it. However, also part two of this is that I live in the woods and there's no Alfa Romeo dealership near me. Uh, so uh, I right, right now this is a dream kind of thing where I can just imagine it and I don't have to deal with the reality of the fact that apparently Alfa Romeo's are only for masochists cuz they break down all the time. Oh no. But hey. Oh. I am living in my I'm living in a fantasy
1: world so it's fine. Anyway, okay, uh, can I just extend <laughs> Stephanie, that Stephanie, what are you about? Okay, well, I just want to extend your fantasy a little bit because I guess then my fantasy for you would be if there's no Alfa Romeo dealerships nearby, then that means one of those big trucks with the double decks of cars has to come up to your door and deliver you your car. I always thought that would be a really cool way to get a car.
0: No, I don't like that because here's the other piece of the puzzle. I also would love a Tesla except for that. Okay. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> they're very expensive and yeah. there's no Tesla dealership near me, but apparently you just order it online and it gets delivered to your house. Yeah. But I don't want some car that I never even sat in or test drove. Like that's crazy. Well, no, no, I agree with that. And you- so I talked myself out of it. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, yeah, Like well, talked
0: myself out of the Tesla obsession because apparently Tesla's also sometimes freeze in winter. Oh, that um, is not something so, I, 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 of. I live in Narnia where- yeah, well, so now you know, yeah. so you don't have to spend all that money on Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you don't you live in California, and I'm sure it's fine, right? So
1: it's so fine that um oh. there are Teslas literally everywhere, like they are they are so ubiquitous around here, but that also gives you an idea that, um we're not going out and buying one. We are a one car family, and it is a Prius that we have owned since two thousand and five. Um, it is a uh, it is a byproduct of living in Silicon Valley. The wealth disparity here is crazy, and so yes, there are a lot of Teslas around, which presumably don't freeze in the winter unless people drive them to Tahoe or whatever. But um, I was not <laughs> I was not aware of the freezing. I was aware of accidents uh, involving autopilot, but not freezing.
0: Yes, I just managed to like literally talk myself out of I because obviously I can't afford one. That's bonkers. They're too expensive. <laughs> But how I managed to shut my brain down and stop fantasizing about it was to think about being frozen on the side <laughs> of the road. Right,
1: right. So. Yeah, that'll, that'll quell your, your uh, desire for sure. Anyway, Stephanie, what are you obsessed with? Okay, so I'm obsessed with sort of two things. One is a food item, um, blueberry buckle. I have this recipe that my mother-in-law gave me years ago when my first, was, my first son was born, so about 10 years ago. And I used to make it every year for his birthday. Uh, Then for some reason, the years went by. I don't love to bake, but this is one thing I do bake. I didn't make it as much. But somehow this summer, I ended up making it five times in the space of a few months. And in fact, I'm already planning to make another one soon, sort of as a back to school thing. And I'm not really sure why it just The obsession bit me so hard this summer. I think it was overcompensating for how much I haven't been making it and being like, oh yeah, we really love this. This is a really great recipe. But also I made one for my parents when they came to visit because my dad loves blueberries. And it came out weird and flat. And I was like, has it always been this way? Or am I misremembering? And then I decided I had done a few things wrong in the recipe, which is par for the course with me and baking. This is why I'm not a great baker is that I generally don't have all the ingredients on hand and I forget stuff. And I'm not like that with savory cooking. I'm much better as a savory cook, but it just was so strange that I felt like I had to rectify it. And in fact, I went and looked and found out that my baking powder was like, like at least five years old. So I needed to go and rectify (laughs) it immediately. I bought new baking powder. I did the whole thing over again. I didn't forget anything and it was perfect and amazing. And my family's been watching the British baking, Great British Baking Show recently. So my husband's fond of turning stuff over and saying, that's a good bake that and scraping at and stuff like that. So (laughs) that has been a food obsession, but I do have what is sort of a bookish obsession, although it's not entirely bookish, but it's this Etsy store called Jezebel Charms. And this woman in England makes these beautiful pieces of jewelry out of, I'm going to get the metal wrong. I think it's bronze. And they are overlaid with, um, well, there's there's a lot of literary stuff because I have one, it's a cuff. It's a, it's a brass cuff with black overlay and then the text is picked out in, in the brass. And it's a particular section from uh, Persuasion by Jane Austen. It's like the most romantic scene of the book. So had to get that. I also have one that has a quote from Dracula in it. And I had to get that because it looks like it's got dripping blood as though you've had vampire bites. Um, But she also has scientific and mathematical ones. So there's math equations. There's the periodic table of elements. There's um, I had to get one for um, my new book launch. It is an anatomical skeleton. So if you imagine black, Nice. on the cuff. And then it's the brass picked out in the anatomical skeleton, but also one that has the Latin memento mori, which is remember, you will die, which I think is just a good practical reminder if I'm um, trying to normalize death. Not that I'm going to read this to the children in any way, but I just have to have this little inside darkness. <laughs> um, but then I have a, a final sure. one, my fifth one, which is she does cartography too. So I have a, a very old map of a part of London. So you've got this beautiful blue Thames flowing through it. Check out her store. They're beautiful and they are clearly addictive because I own six of them.
0: (laughs) Well, I will put a link to that in the show notes as well as all the books we talked about. And if you will send me the blueberry thing recipe, I'll put that too. Definitely. All right. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Thanks to my guest, Stephanie Lucianovic. Her book, The End of Something Wonderful, illustrated by George Ermos, is on bookstore shelves September 10th. And thanks so much to you for listening. If you'd like to support the literati Cast, we do have a Patreon. That's patreon.com slash literati Also, I'll have links to Stephanie's book, as well as all the books we talked about today up on my website. That's jenniferloffren.com slash literati cast. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time.